This is the WOW Signal Podcast, a production of Dream of the Open Channel. It's January 2013, and this is Episode 3, A Conversation with Socrates, The Future of Humanity, Part 1, with Nikola Donilov. Welcome, this is Paul Carr. The last two episodes of the WOW Signal podcast have been all about aliens, missing aliens, inexplicable aliens, shy aliens, and aliens we can't even imagine the nature of. In this episode, we will begin our dialogue about an equally odd creature, the ape descendant known as human, us. Specifically, We want to talk about humanity's future. Do we humans have a future? Is our future filled with wondrous technology that transforms our world, our solar system, and our minds and bodies in ways we can't hope to foresee? Or is it a dystopian nightmare? Or is it neither? Forty years from now, will we be lodged comfortably in our townhouses and tweeting pictures of our cats? I think that the only thing that is clear is that a great deal is going to change over the next generation. A lot has already changed, but we are still in the early stages. I personally need to filter out some of the noise surrounding our view of the future. Where to start? I thought I would start by talking to someone who has been all around the future as seen and has read nearly everything and interviewed many, if not most, of the key thinkers about our future philosopher, singulatarian, and infopreneur Nikola Donilov, a.k.a. Socrates, is the host of the Singularity One-on-One podcast and the Singularity weblog. Nikola Donilov was born in Bulgaria and moved to Canada in 1998, where he studied political science, philosophy, and economics at the University of Toronto, and received an MA degree in political science at York University. It was at York University that Nikola got deeply interested in the technological singularity. Since then, he attended a graduate program at Singularity University in the summer of 2011. On his podcast, he has interviewed everyone, from fiction authors like Cory Doctorow and Werner Vinge, to scientists like Gary Marcus and Anders Sandberg, life extension experts like Aubrey de Grey, and movers and shakers like Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis. I will provide links in the show notes at wowsignalpodcast.blogspot.com to Nicola's blog and podcast, which I recommend. He lets his guests really stretch out and discuss their ideas in depth, and what you hear is often not what you expect. It's better. As I, I said in my email, my, my podcast is primarily about is uh, the long-term future of humanity and the prospects for contact with other civilizations uh, out there in the universe. And 
The reason I wanted to talk to you is is because you've interviewed and met, have met with uh, a lot of people in the futurist field, especially some of the more uh, deep thinkers like Andrew Sandberg and and others. And, and I have uh, I have a real interest in how that interacts with not only our future but with possible futures of um, alien civilizations and if they would be like us in some way. So I'm going to encourage you to put on your futurist hat, uh, speculate a little bit if you, uh, to the degree that you feel comfortable. And uh, let's talk about, first of all, the transhuman future for humanity. One of the big issues is can a human consciousness be, uh, the word is, the word a lot of people use is uploaded, but what I really mean is transferred to a, a non-biological substrate. Uh, you've talked to a lot of people about that. I was wondering what your own thoughts were. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul, there's a lot of issues there that you just mentioned. So, uh, let me start one by one, perhaps in reverse order. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's start with transhumanism, first of all. So what is transhumanism, the way I see it? I like to define the terms so that other people know specifically what I'm talking about, because as I found out after doing about 80 or 90 interviews, pretty much all the experts out there in the field of pretty much anything uh, relevant to our conversation today be it transhumanism or the technological singularity and artificial intelligence, they all have their own definitions. <laughs> so it, it, it often happens that they kind of talk past each other simply because they're talking about different things. Now, with respect to transhumanism, um, I would say that in my view, transhumanism is simply the idea that we can improve on what we've got. And we can do so with respect to technology. And furthermore, that there's nothing wrong with us attempting to improve on what Mother Nature gave us or God gave us, according to others. Now, uh, let me be uh, completely upfront here. I'm 100% atheist, um, so I would uh, rather talk about Mother Nature. Uh, That's fine with me. But basically, as I said, the idea is that we can improve what we've got in our biology and go a lot beyond it and perhaps limitless. So let's take it step by step. So first, how do we go beyond? Well, we go beyond already by doing simple things like, for example, wearing clothes, right? We would not be able to colonize the northern or the southern parts of our hemisphere were it not not for our ability to have clothes. So that's a very simple way of enhancing our biology, but we've been doing it for thousands of years. And take that a step further, we can go to things like, you know, cognitive enhancement where we can enhance our intelligence, not only our physical capabilities to endure cold, for example, right? So take uh, a simple device like a cell phone or a computer, those are tools that al- allow us to reach across time and space. Those are tools that allow us to go 
almost infinitely beyond our biological limitations, right? So right. that's what transhumanism is all about. It's about transcending our limitations, going beyond. And I would say it's, it's a process not about perfection because I don't think we can ever reach that point of perfect equilibrium. Uh, but it's, it's an ongoing process. So it's a constant improvement. And so it's more of a direction than a, uh, than a destination. Absolutely. It's a journey. It's a journey. It's in, in Eastern philosophy, they say, uh, for example, if you take Buddhism or even martial arts, there's that concept of Do. Do is the path. It's the journey. So basically, you start, you start on that path and you may never reach and, and you probably never will. But the idea is as long as you take one step at a time and you go, you know, every day, then you're improving and you, and you're doing better and better job every day. And also I would like to advocate that transhumanism is actually ethically required given the circumstances that we live in today. Because it's the best hope that would allow us to alleviate suffering, and it is one of the best hopes to alleviate suffering uh, through the variety of tools that are given to us by the smart application of science. I see. Okay, well, if we take the direction of transhumanism, um, well, first of all, let me ask you that. Uh, given where we are here in 2013, yeah. we look out a few decades. I know Ray Kurzweil saying the singularity is near. Um, I can understand his motivation. He's not a young man. He'd like to see it happen in his lifetime. <laughs> uh, he's doing everything he can to stay alive. But uh, the if you just look out, I, we don't have to put a specific time on it, but we look out a, a few decades, maybe many decades, are we heading in that direction uh, as a planet, as a species, or is it just going to be a small subset of us that actually merges with our technology in, in, in a more profound way than we have so far? Yes to both questions. <laughs> so let me see if I can unpack it. So first of all, I, I think are we heading towards that direction? Absolutely. I mean, just look around. Uh, as we're speaking, we have CES going on in Las Vegas, and, and just some of the gadgets there are absolutely incredible. If, if you look at them from just a decade ago, uh, people wouldn't believe that the stuff that we're seeing today at CES would have been possible. And major car manufacturers such as Audi and Lexus talking about autonomous self-driving cars, for example, right? Uh, let's not even forget that Google has had their prototypes for a few years now, and they have logged, last time I heard, something like half a million miles, right? So are we heading in that direction? I have absolutely no doubt. Now, is it going to be a small fraction of us or all of us? You know, that's really hard to say, but it doesn't really matter in the end of the day because think about it this way. When dinosaurs went extinct, mammals were just a tiny, you know, part of the total biosphere. They were a niche organism. And when we had the extinction event that basically killed uh, 
dinosaurs, supposedly an asteroid impact, uh, then those niche organisms became the dominant organism on the planet, right? So right. in the end of the day, it doesn't really matter whether it's few of us or all of us in the grander scheme of things. It matters to the ones of us who don't make it, like, for example, Ray Kurzweil or the two of us. So it would matter for us personally speaking, but in the grander scheme of things, it wouldn't matter. The The direction is more important. And likewise, I would like to say that the timeline is, you know, curious and we can speculate about it. And, and I will tell you my opinion about it too. But in the grander scheme of things, philosophically speaking, you know, with respect to the age of our universe, 10 or 15 or 20 or even 100 and 500 years are absolutely irrelevant. We're talking of billions of years here, right? So whether right. it would happen in 2045 or 2085 or 2145, it would make a difference only to Ray Kurzweil and the two of us. But in the, you know, cosmic universe sense of things, in the grander scheme of things, philosophically speaking, what philosophers are generally concerned with the long term, that doesn't make a difference, right? So for me, that's also a very likely scenario. I, I would give it, you know, a high probability, uh, probably like 90% and high in long term. In the short term, I would also, just like Ray, would like to see it and to witness it and to experience that event. Uh, would we be that fortunate? I am not, I am not that sure about that myself. Will we, will we know when it happens? I mean, is there going to be an event, or are we just going to have smarter and smarter machines, more and more part of our internal life as well as external life? Well, there's two points of view of that. Uh, one one point of view is that, you know, it's a singularity, so therefore we would definitely know when it happens. That's the whole idea. It would be radically, fundamentally, uniquely different from everything that we've ever experienced and seen before. Uh, it would basically be a rupture of our historical continuum up until that point, right? And that's why it's called a singularity, because our ability to model the future would fall apart. Just like in a black hole, uh, we are, you know, of course, borrowing the metaphor from physics, where a black hole is basically a place where the fabric of time-space ruptures and the laws of the universe do not hold true as we know them. So the same applies to the technological singularity in the sense that, you know, we have a very good, reasonable expectation to model our future, more or less, or we have had that. But when that moment of the technological singularity happens and we have, you know, other superhuman intelligences, then our ability to model the future falls apart. And that's why it's a singularity. It's a breakthrough point. So it's, it's really more from our perspective today, trying to look forward where we, we can't see past the singularity. But when we get there, who knows what we can see? <laughs> we can't, we can't predict that. Yeah. And, and that, but that also brings me to the second point that I was going to make. And that's, I think it was Marvin Minsky said, it was Marvin, Marvin Minsky who argued in probably mid eighties that if you are actually riding the wave of technological change like a surfer, then there is no singularity for you from that point of view. 
right? So, right. for example, if you are like the Amish, sort of totally divorced from any technological change, or at least not maybe totally divorced, but moving at a very, very slow pace, then that singularity will be very obvious and apparent to you. However, mm. if you are successfully riding that wave of technological change like a surfer, even if the wave gets bigger and bigger and faster and faster, as long as you're able to ride it, then from that point of view, it's basically smooth surfing. Uh, there's no singularity from that point of view. And Marvin Minsky famously said that I myself uh, plan to ride that wave. <laughs> so... You know, and then there's other issues such as whether the technological singularity would be what's called a hard takeoff or a soft takeoff, as Werner Vinge called them. Basically, the, the idea of soft takeoff being what you describe, a very slow, uh, gradual process, which is almost, you know, imperceptible to most of us. And a hard takeoff, which could happen, you know, within minutes or hours or days, and which will basically radically alter everything that we know of. Um, and there's a debate on both of those. Uh, I personally don't really know where I sit right now. I see the pros and cons and the likelihood of them both. But I, I am, I would say, probably about 60 to 70% in the sort of a slow takeoff uh, camp. Uh, at the moment. And the reason for this is that I just don't think that we get technology usually perfect at the first go. So if you are talking about artificial intelligence, even if we are able to create it um, as we most likely will, it wouldn't be on the first try as we've seen so far. That's what our experience shows so far. So, uh, the first few attempts, we may get very close to it and we can even create it, but then it is likely to fail, to not survive very long. Just like, you know, many young species don't make it through the dawn of their existence, evolutionary speaking. And, mm -hmm. and the same, I think, would happen with AI. Until eventually we get the process so, um, you know, glitch-free, and we sort of work through all the errors and the crashes and things like that that we are likely to experience, and then it might come to the point where it would take off. But for this reason, I think it's more likely to be a gradual process rather than a hard takeoff. Uh, Jaron Lanier famously said that the singularity is likely to end with the bull screen of death. And while that's his Jaron's way of poking fun at the singularitarians, uh, I think he's both right and wrong. I think he's right because the first couple of times that's probably going to be the case indeed. But I think he's also wrong because he undermine, um, underestimates the longer term, uh, ability of, of our long term ability to actually work through those errors and fix them and, and therefore avoid that to keep reoccurring. So yes, it could happen once or twice, but in the long term, we would get through it. Now, I, help me understand the diversity of opinion about mind uploading, um, particularly uh, there are some who say it's just too difficult a problem to ever solve. Others say 
it's a very manageable problem they already understand the basic outlines of. And in between, there's a lot of other opinions. The other, there are even the dualists who say it's impossible because you can't upload a soul, right? Um, well, the, I haven't seen any scientific evidence of the soul so far, um, personally speaking. Uh, I am more of a, you know, uh, follow the evidence no matter where it takes you. And uh, le- let me, okay, let me rephrase that and start from a different point of view. The opposition and the controversy around mind uploading stems from two parts, from two major points of view, just and very similar to transhumanism, by the way, uh, because also mind uploading is considered to be the final outcome of transhumanism uh, at the point in which we are going to be so-called post-human, augmented beings. Um, but the opposition usually stems from two places. One is the place where it says, oh, that's totally impossible. It's never going to happen. We don't have the technology. We don't understand even the basic functions of the brain, let alone model it, let alone simulate it. It's way too complex. It's never going to happen. That's one point of view. Another uh, also negative point of view or skeptical point of view comes from the ethical implications of this. So putting putting aside the scientific viability of, of the issue, people argue against it for ethical reasons or religious reasons, and they say, well, we shouldn't do it. Mind uploading is something we shouldn't do, and, and then they put forward their argument, you know, stemming from usually religious or other uh, points of view as to why we shouldn't do it. So let me address each of those separately. So first of all, is it possible or not? Well, Scientifically speaking, I've never seen any evidence to suggest that it is impossible, right? So far, scientifically speaking, everything that we've learned about the human body, we know that every single part of it is replaceable, functionally speaking, right? So, for example, uh, nowadays, things like joint replacements are considered common practice. You know, my father, unfortunately, had uh, a number of strokes and heart attacks last year, and he lives in Bulgaria and not in a major city. But even there where he was, he was able to get a double bypass um, pretty successfully. So we're talking the countryside of Bulgaria almost, right? So think mm-hmm. of 30 years ago or 40 years ago, people had problems people have never heard of bypass surgery, now it is basically a routine procedure and tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people undergo it every year and millions have gone through it up to now already. And the same applies to most other parts of the human body, be it knee joints, you know, elbows, shoulders, you name it, kidneys, uh, and so The idea is that if we can functionally or equivalently replace any of the organs that our body has, why should the brain be different? And people say, well, it's different because it's way too complex. Sure, I mean, just like the human heart is much more complex than, you know, a knee joint, for example, right? But as we know already, there have been people who have survived for, I think, several weeks with artificial hearts. So uh, we are able to create even artificial human hearts nowadays. Not very well, mind you, uh, and it's only a temporary fix, one that 
most of the time allows people to basically uh, continue waiting for an appropriate heart transplant from, you know, a donor. But eventually the idea is that just like we can create titanium joints, we will be able to create artificial hearts. And yes, the brain is another order of magnitude harder than the heart, but scientifically speaking, I haven't seen any reasons why it should be fundamentally different than those other organs other than just in, in its complexity. So that for me only means that it's going to take a little bit longer to get there, perhaps a couple of decades, a couple of decades, give or take, but eventually that would happen. And if you look at most scientists um, in the field, uh, Dr. Randall Kuna, for example, who works on the whole brain emulation project, said that mind uploading is not science fiction anymore. You have people like uh, Henry Markram who are raising a billion dollars to create the first uh, whole brain simulation. You have uh, IBM's Synapse project uh, headed by Dhametra Mota. And those are all very well-respected scientists at the cutting edge of their fields uh, and, and respect, well-respected companies like IBM who have a very long history of meeting their benchmarks, by the way. Uh, so I, I don't think that's scientifically unrealistic in any way possible. Now, going to the ethical opposition uh, to mind uploading, you know, it's the same thing as, uh, the, the, if I may call them, the lower steps of transhumanism. Basically, people say, well, you shouldn't enhance your body, you shouldn't enhance your mind, you shouldn't get what they call, what they would call superhuman abilities, be it physical or, or cognitive, uh, because first it's wrong, because if God wanted to give them to us, uh, he would have given them to us, but he didn't, and therefore we shouldn't, uh, you know, meddle with the work of Mother Nature or the work of God. You know, I, I've already mentioned that I'm an atheist, and, and therefore I, this, this opposition totally doesn't work for me. Uh, in fact, we've been meddling for, you know, as long as we can remember. Since the, you know, adoption of fire, we've been meddling, we've created our own clothes, we have molded our environments to suit our needs and our requirements to uh, provide food and shelter for us and our families. And we have very long history of enhancing the human body, starting with clothes and shoes, then, you know, going through glasses, then, you know, all kinds of other tools like cell phones and external uh, computers and eventually through things which are going to be embedded in our body, just like, for example, a, a joint replacement is uh, embedded in our body. Um, and the other opposition is that the so-called prisoner's dilemma opposition, which is to say, well, if my neighbor's kid, you know, takes cognitive enhancement drugs and apply to Ivy League schools, they're likely going to get accepted, and my kid, no matter how hard it works, he, he or she works, she's not going to get accepted unless she's also likewise taking those cognitive enhancement drugs. And therefore, we all become sort of uh, caught in that prisoner's dilemma and we got hijacked, being in a way forced to enhance ourselves. Well, we're seeing, kind of seeing that same thing going on in sports right now, aren't we? 
like the controversy or Lance Armstrong's doping and so forth. Yeah, uh, and, and you know, I, I have to say I, I am a cyclist myself and, and the reason why actually the whole reason why I became a cyclist was Lance Armstrong because before that I used to do martial arts. But I had a bunch of injuries and I was looking for a safer sport. <laughs> mm-hmm. So and, and I actually read Lance Armstrong's book uh called It's Not About the Bike where he sort of chronicles his personal journey and struggle with cancer and then his first uh, couple of Tour de France wins. And that book totally blew my mind. And, and, and you know, I, I became an avid road cyclist. Uh, now, uh, for the Lance Armstrong case, if you're curious, I have to say that Despite the fact that I really love Lance and I love what he's accomplished, I personally have never had any doubt about him doping. Um, and I was always hoping to be wrong, of course, but given the fact that everyone he's ever competed with from on his own team uh, of any note, uh, just like everyone he's ever competed against, like, like Jan Ulrich, his German arch-rival, uh, and Ivan Basso, uh, everyone was caught doping. So it's, it's, it's humanly impossible to, um, to compete against those people, which is a very interesting, unless you do it too. And also there was that pervasive culture of doping in, in cycling for a good two decades, if not more. Um, uh, now my views on that though go even further by saying that I'm not sure that we should actually uh, make doping illegal. Uh, I think that um, one way or another, I mean, look at it this way. Take any major American sports nowadays. 90% of the substances that are banned in, cy- in cycling or even for the Olympics are not even tested in things like the NHL, the NBA, and the, and the NFL, right? And if you look at the average salary of a cyclist, which is about $80,000 per year, Nothing compared to any salary in NBA, NFL, and NHL, right? Right. So where do you think are the biggest users of doping? In cycling or in hockey or in basketball or in football where people get, you know, 50 or $100 million? Oh, yeah. The incentive is definitely there. And and mind you, as I said, 90% of the substances which are banned in, in cycling and in, no, in most other sports, are not even tested, uh, not even banned for those sports in North America. Let, let's not mention that most athletes are not even tested every season, and it's just completely divorced from reality, right? So we are living here in North America in this bubble by thinking that our athletes are clean, but what I bet you that's absolutely not the case. Absolutely not the case. So my... My take on this is instead of, you know, making it illegal or sweeping it under the carpet, make it legal to the degree that we have any sufficient evidence to suggest that it is safe and start monitoring it and start, you know, uh, learning from that. That That's what I would say. Um as we see in cycling, uh, banning it doesn't doesn't get rid of the problem, and it it never has. 
so yes, we we have the the war on drugs in on on doping and cycling it hasn't worked. I don't think it will work. Um, you have the war on drugs. Uh, I I'm a big skeptic on that war myself too. Um, I don't think it's produced any result. It's just wasted, you know, tens, perhaps hundreds of billions of dollars. And I think we should just reconsider our attitude to to things like that very much so. And it wouldn't be easy. It would require huge ethical disputes and debates. Um, but I think especially in North America where personal liberty, privacy, and and sort of freedom of choice is, is uh, valued so much, I think it should be a little or much easier here. Yeah, I, I've, uh, I've noticed, at least in the United States, there, there's this big tension between people who want a war on drugs and widespread disregard for drug laws. I mean, we all know somebody who smokes pot, uh, or maybe many people who smoke pot, including some quite distinguished people, highly accomplished people, not not just the neighborhood stoner. Uh, and other drugs are also very enthusiastically partaken in, and yet we all get very puritanical when when we're in the public arena and we start talking about, well, that's just terrible. We, that person isn't suitable for anything. Of course, now. It's well known that President Obama smoked pot as a young man and that George Bush certainly participated in some illegal substances <laughs> when he was in college. So maybe I it's think that's part of growing up, you know, honestly. Yeah. You know, even though I, I have to differentiate myself here and say, you know, uh, there is a difference, I believe, between hard drugs and soft drugs. And not, most notably, it's one thing to, to, to experiment with marijuana it, it, when you're in college, especially, it's another thing to to start doing crack cocaine or something like that, right? Those those two are completely different things, in my view. Um, also, um, you could make a very good argument that the positive and or the negative effects of things like marijuana are very similar to the positive and negative effects of alcohol, sure. which is legal, um, yeah. and, and therefore, in that well, sense, well, that's because you know. White people drank alcohol and black people smoked pot. So <laughs> it was. <laughs> well, which which would you make illegal if you're Unfortunately, the class? you might have a point there, especially in the North America in the American sort of a context, uh, which is another brings me back to another very beneficial part of transhumanism, um, and that is that transhumanism creates this tolerance for diversity, right? So. If we live in a in a transhuman world where uh, things like sex, age, uh, race, uh, size, uh, etc., are all going to be non-constant uh, and determined by choice, right. uh, then the tolerance that of, of the public tolerance of differences between different individuals. Uh, would be totally, totally, uh, fine. Uh, and, and, and so the, the differences of color, which right now play huge importance in American politics, uh, would be totally, you know, irrelevant because 
people would be able to be white on one day, black on another day for a party, say for Halloween or 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 Asian or whatever, and grow five hands and and do all kinds of crazy stuff with their biology. Um, be men or be women or or be transgendered, and and therefore small differences like the 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 type of color that your skin has would be as irrelevant as the the color of your eyes basically if mm-hmm. if not more so uh or how curly and straight your hair is so okay. therefore i think transhumanism actually can help us bridge those cultural differences let me ask and, you about another type of diversity um Say those who choose not to participate in any kind of transhuman revolution. Mm-hmm. Say the Amish, or yeah. whatever the Amish, whatever, whoever the Amish are 50 years from now. Yeah. Uh, there may be people who say, not for me. Will they be able to function? Well, you see, the biggest, I think that's the answer to that question would have the most impact with respect to how successful that transhumanist society will be or not. Because it's usually the uh, ability to, of the most vulnerable part of the population that can indict or speak, you know, volumes about the general health of that society as a whole. And so the fact that the Amish are able to uh, sustain their kind of lifestyle today speaks about the freedom that, you know, we enjoy here where we live right now. They can make that choice and they can follow through with it. And I believe that the future transhumanist society that I'm talking about must be able to accommodate people who do not decide to join that transhumanist uh, future. Uh, so I believe that we must provide safe havens um, or places for people uh, who decide for religious or moral or personal reasons not to to join uh, and who can, you know, peacefully coexist with us. The, the whole, I think that the whole uh, recipe for just and fair and peaceful society is, is you know, the, the peaceful coexistence of diametrically opposed points of view. If you can have, you know, the Jewish and the Palestinian and the atheist and the, and the religious guy and, you know, the technophobe and the technophile and the gay and the, and the heterosexual all live together in peace, then that's, I think, a society that I want to be a part of. See. Okay. Uh, now let's talk about generalizing, uh, what we just discussed to, other intelligent species in galaxies far, far away. Do we, or let's say, when I say we, I mean the community of thinkers on these subjects. Is there any consensus on whether they would experience a similar transition at some point in their cultural evolution, or is this something that's more likely uniquely human? Well, of course, this... uh this part of our conversation now is 100% speculation. Of course. But, <laughs> and, and I encourage that. <laughs> but uh, basically, 
I think that it's very likely that the singularity is this kind of a great civilization filter. Basically, in this, the way I see it, in this 21st century, chances are that we're either going to survive and prosper, or we're going to go extinct. And, uh, you know, I'm an optimist. I think that we have, you know, 60% or more chance to to survive, or at least some of us, as I mentioned before, and and therefore, uh, in the grand scheme of things, it wouldn't really make make a difference how many, but sufficiently enough to to take us to the next step of evolution. Um, and so, in cosmic terms, many civiliza- civilizations perhaps go extinct right in in that period, though, and the reason is because you know, the tools become so increasingly capable and powerful that self-annihilation uh, becomes a very serious possibility. And that's why I said that tolerance and, and you know, mutual respect to uh, seemingly incompatible points of view is very important for the peaceful coexistence and survival of, of us all, by the way. Uh, because if we fail to do that, I think that's the path, that's the road to annihilation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and many, perhaps most, uh, civilizations out there fail at that filter. Perhaps they reach a similar point of uh, evolutionary development that we are at right now. And perhaps, you know, either through nuclear holocaust, uh, or some other uh, horribly technological, you know, technologically advanced way, they go entirely extinct. Or they go back in time, you know, so bad, so much that they almost start with a clean slate. I see. And so that, that's an interesting point of view. Um, and it makes sense to me that the technology that we have is a two-edged sword. It, a lot of it was developed for military purposes to begin with, which is purposes of, of killing people. Most not, of it, yeah. Much not enhancing their lives. And, uh, I read a, a book by Robert Wright where she called, um, Non-Zero, where he talks about the advance of civilization. Mm-hmm. War has been, you know, for all its horrors and all its, all its suffering, has been a big push behind cultural evolution but if we let it push us now we could blow ourselves up so do we have to well, solve but, the war but problem goes before waste with war too you know for example if you take uh, even people like leonardo da vinci leonardo da vinci was often hired uh, as a military advisor uh, to apply his scientific knowledge by a number of his benefactors but uh, that allowed him also to create uh, most of his masterpieces, which were civilian. Um, and take, for example, a, a more sort of a common or, or a more relevant example, which is the Internet. The Internet was developed basically in order to coordinate the, uh, the U.S. Minutemen uh, nuclear missiles uh, in the case of a, of a war with the Soviet Union. And that was at least the 
the original idea, the original inception that was funded by DARPA. And if you look at it now, the Internet is easily, you can say, vastly used for civilian rather than military purposes. And th- that doesn't mean it's not being used, you know, for cyber warfare, etc. And, you know, we have cyber crime and all those other things. But still, I think the vast majority of the Internet today is civilian and it's being used by everyone. It's not used by governments and militaries only. It's predominantly used by people and it's predominantly used for civilian purposes. So, yes, many technologies start military, but it cuts both ways. They end up civilian in the end, largely civilian, just like some technologies start civilian and then once they show certain kind of promise, then the military is the first biggest funder of those technologies, trying to adopt them for military purposes. And then in some cases, at least as the Internet, then they, you know, trickle back into the civilian realm and overwhelm the military realm, I mm. think. So do we, have to, do we have to solve the war problem to survive this big filter? I mean, you might argue that we've... Um, already made some progress there. Steven Pinker's recent, latest book is about yeah. the decline in violence. Yeah. And, um, it has declined and, and we had one enormous war about, what, 70 years ago. And we haven't had a war anywhere near that size since. Uh, we've had lots of little wars and lots of nastiness, uh, between various tribes and, and uh, mm-hmm. political factions, but it does seem to be settling down. Uh, I hope it continues to settle, but if it doesn't, is there any way we can get past this? Can we get past this great filter um, without making, essentially making peace over the whole planet? Well, I hope that we can. Uh, that doesn't mean that I know for sure that we will. Uh, so I, I definitely hope that we can. But as I said, it might be the case that most civilization fail at that junction of their evolutionary history. Um, so whether we would or we won't depends largely on the decisions we're going to take in the next several decades. And that's why I think it's uh, so important to raise awareness of the issues and educate people on the variety and the spectrum of options that our future would be able to afford to us so that hopefully we can overcome our narrow-minded, you know, religious or ethnic or other prejudices, which are basically, I think, largely... um, responsible for our um, conflicts right now and, and also things like scarcity, right? So if we live in a future of abundance rather than scarcity, uh, how would that impact the future? I think it would make it a lot more peaceful. Um, and there would be a lot less likelihood for conflict. So it, it goes both, you know, with respect to our physical material environment if we are able to overcome scarcity or at least greatly diminish it, then the possibility of conflict would greatly diminish too. But also it goes, you know, with respect to uh, 
overcoming our very own human, mental, ethical, religious, and ethnic biases that we harbor deep within ourselves. Okay. Um, and that makes a lot of sense to me. So, now, now here's something that I'm trying to address in my podcast, which is, I'm sure you've heard of it, it's called the Fermi Paradox, which states that we should have seen clear, unambiguous evidence by now of other civilizations colonizing the galaxy because of the vast timescales involved. Essentially, mm-hmm. it, only, it takes maybe uh, 10 to 100 million years to colonize, colonize the galaxy, and there have been billions of years to do it, which implies any number of possibilities. Um, but one, one thing I'd like to explore is if any other civilization reaches a certain level um, has essentially transcended their biology, would they even be interested in physically traveling to other worlds? Would would colonization even still make sense? Or I'm, what I'm yes, getting at is, I, I would I would actually say that colonization colonization actually necessitates us overcoming biology, because look at it from this point of view: if you are traveling at first of all, if you have mass, if you are physically embodied you are immediately hijacked by the laws of the universe with respect to mass. And that means that there would be a very strong, you know, factor of limitations with respect to the maximum velocity you can move in, the maximum amount of G-force that you can take, you know, without dying, for example, and all those things. So... And also weight uh, with respect to distance traveled. So if you want to colonize the universe, which is, as we know, vastly, 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 hugely enormous thing. Uh, <laughs> that was an understatement, too, by <laughs> the way. Uh, the best way would be for us to be augmented, because that would allow us to overcome most of those limitations. The moment we become augmented, we would be able to, at the very least, shrink enormously in terms of size. That would make us much more durable, so we would be able to overcome limitations such as G-force. We would be also able to travel much greater distances with much lower requirements of uh, propulsion, for example. And if we find a way, for example, to upload into beams of light, uh, then we will be definitely traveling at the speed of light. Yes. And, and so I, I would say that, in fact, you know, colonization of space necessitates us overcoming our biology and, and, and going to be becoming mind uploads. Otherwise, uh, any such colonization would take, you know, forever. It, it, it may, may make it even impossible, actually given the fact that the universe is humongous, and especially if it's expanding, then the question is, is the speed of expansion of that universe going to be faster than the speed of embodied astronauts colonizing the universe? And I would venture to say yes, and if that's the case, then it's purely going to be impossible to colonize it like that. Now, 
once you travel over those distances, there might be benefits to rematerialize and re-embody those colonizers into, you know, physical bodies of one sort or another. But at least during that transportation period, I would say chances are that they have to be augmented. Now, we we use the term augmented to mean uh, exactly what do you mean by augmented? Yeah, uh, I, th- that's a good point, by the way, right? Because you can say that, you know, using our cell phones, we are being augmented as we are. Uh, I, I, I mean, though, the next step, I mean augmented beings. I mean non-corporeal augmented beings, which are totally beyond biology, disembodied beings. So, in other words, in this context, uh, and and it's a very good thing that you've noticed it, so that we make the distinction. Uh, augmented beings, for me, is a synonym synonym to disembodied beings. I see. Because non-corporeal. I wear glasses, so that makes me augmented. <laughs> well, I am I am practically blind myself. If I weren't uh, wearing contacts, I am uh, minus seven. So. Um, hmm. There you go. Uh, A few hundred years ago, I mean, of course, you can make an argument that the reason why I'm so short-sighted is because I've been reading ridiculous amounts of books and spending enormous amounts of time on my computer. So if I were born a hundred years ago, that wouldn't have been the case, and therefore I wouldn't have been so short-sighted, perhaps. So we don't know which one is it. But on the other hand, if I were so short-sighted a few decades or hundreds of years ago, I probably wouldn't have been able to survive in most contexts on our planet. Uh, because just a couple of hundred years ago, uh, you know, if you were as blind as I am, you wouldn't be able to fend for yourself. Okay. okay. Uh, so do you have any last thoughts on transhumanism as applies to uh, the long-term future? Uh, the, or not, ju- not just the human future, but to the future of any technologically advanced species? Mm-hmm. Well, let me think. Uh, let's see how we can connect this. You know, one of my favorite quotes is um, from George Bernard Shaw. Uh, it comes from a piece that he wrote in 1903 where he says that the reasonable man adapts himself to the world and the unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Hmm. So, if I were to have a parting message, I would say to people, be unreasonable. Dream impossible dreams. Never give up. And eventually, that's, uh, you will change the world. Because that's the only way you can change it. If you are reasonable and if you are conservative with, you know, what's possible and what's reasonable to accomplish, (laughs) uh, first of all, that's not inspiring. People have never been inspired by visions of reasonability and, and so on. You know, people have been inspired with, you know, the JFK a famous speech that within 10 years will put a man on the moon and safely bring him back. At the time when he made that, of course, that was totally unreasonable. 
But people got inspired precisely because he put a very specific concrete re- vision, which was, you know, unreasonable but inspiring. Oh, yeah. For my generation, that was the moment of inspiration. Uh, Absolutely. So I, I think was only a few years old when he said that, but uh, we all just were very, very excited. And, and I actually went into that field for that, for that reason. There you go. So, so I think we as a civilization can benefit if we have, you know, those sort of calls to action, inspirational calls to, calls to action once per decade, perhaps, instead of once every 50 years, you know. If yeah. we can have those once per decade and there's, you know, a, an unreasonable leader who can come up with a vision and inspire the masses once per decade, humanity would make huge strides in, 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 in terms of progress. I'd like to thank Nikola Danilov for joining me on this episode of the Wow Signal podcast. My own views on the singularity are moderately skeptical. I see the singularity as one way of framing the future, but there may be other ways that will make more sense as we get close to the time of strong AI. And until we do it, we don't even know if strong AI will ever happen. Yes, our computer power is getting exponentially greater, but the problems AI faces are exponentially hard. The other objection I have is, as one of my computer science professors once asked, why would anyone want to build a computer as stupid as a human? To make machines both very smart and useful, we might have to diverge quite a lot from the AI paradigm. There are other researchers like Miguel Nicolelis who are technological optimists, but do not believe the singularity will happen at all because what the human brain can do is outside the reach of engineering. Rather, they see us being in charge as we merge with our technology, which serves us with its processing power and memory, but cannot supplant us. As far as framing, clearly the singularity has already happened several times in human prehistory and history. That is, we invented or stumbled upon something that changed our world radically and irreversibly in ways our ancestors before could never have understood. Language, Food production and writing are three big ones, and especially writing, since it gives one mind access to many others, even those long dead. That alone multiplies brain power far greater than any AI has done to date. I'll have a blog post on this soon at disownedsky.blogspot.com. For me, though, the big question remains. Singularity or no? Can a human mind migrate from a biological to a non-biological substrate? Is it really just an engineering problem? Many smart people think it is possible, but no one has shown how. If someone can just migrate a mouse mind, or even a worm mind, then I would be optimistic. I don't know the answer to the uploading question, but I think it is crucial to interstellar migration. Or, perhaps there is another thing no one has thought of.
I'm excited about our plans for Episode 4. I will be interviewing Dr. David Grinspoon, astrobiologist, Curiosity Rover science team member, and award-winning author of one of the best popular books on astrobiology, Lonely Planets, The Natural Philosophy of Alien Life. We'll ask him about the past, present, and future of astrobiology, the prospects for finding life in the solar system, and the possibility of a new book. I'd like to remind everyone that if you wish to comment on this episode or any previous episode, or if you have a burning question, email me at wowsignalpodcast at gmail.com and I will call you up to conduct a short interview with you during which you can express your opinion or ask your question to appear in the next episode or two of the Wow Signal Podcast. Please visit the show notes for episode three at wowsignalpodcast.blogspot.com and leave your comments. I will also have links to Nicholas' blog and the Singularity one-on-one podcast there. Now, I'd like to take us out with some music by Mike Griffin, an excerpt from Ixay Om from his limited CDR release, Sounds Are Hidden Inside Objects. If you like this sort of experimental electronic music, Mike is one of the best practitioners. Go to hypnos.com to learn more about Mike and his music and to order CDs. In addition to Mike Griffin, I'd like to thank Nikola Danilov, Aluchatistas, and Joyce Abba for their contributions to this program. This has been Episode 3 of the WOW Signal Podcast. The spoken content of the WOW Signal Podcast is distributed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. All music is presented with the permission of the artists. Please see the Episode 3 show notes for details and links at wowsignalpodcast.blogspot.com.